Welcome to the Davos in the Desert podcast series. My name is Mark Oliver and I am the producer of the Davos in the Desert podcast series. Our podcasts feature thought leaders in business and public policy. Our sessions are meant to be informative and thought-provoking. The topic of this session is an overview of rockets and satellites, and our guest is Ashley Vance. Ashley Vance is Elon Musk's biographer. His best-selling books include Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and The Quest for a Fantastic Future and, more recently, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Without further ado, here is David Wanatik, the CEO of Davos in the Desert and the host of our podcast series. Welcome to the Davos in the Desert podcast series. My name is David Wanatik. I'm the CEO of Davos in the Desert. Today, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome Ashley Vance to our podcast. Uh, the subject of today's podcast is uh, rockets and satellites. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Ashley in a little bit of detail. He is uh, Elon Musk's uh, bi biographer. Uh, he wrote a fascinating book called uh, Elon Musk. I'll show it to you. Uh, the book is called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. This book was published in uh, May of 2015. His most recent book is entitled When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Both very uh, fine books. I've read them, really enjoyed them, learned a lot from them. They're uh, easy and, and fun reads as well. Uh, Ashley Vance's writing often also appears in such publications as The Economist, Chicago Tribune, CNN.com, The Globe Mail, The International Herald the Tribune, and CNET. Mr. Vance writes and hosts the Hello World video series for Bloomberg, which focuses on the tech scene in various countries. So, Ashley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> Before we dive into rockets and satellites, uh, you've had the unique experience and opportunity to work with Elon Musk and some of the other rocketeers. Um, any particular stories that stand out or any facets of any of these intriguing individuals that really stands out that you want to talk about? Well, oh, that's a big question. I mean, the... Uh... Most of the fun stories I try to put in the books. I try not to leave too much A material, um, you know, on the on the sidelines. I'd say, you know, the big picture. It's it's just been, um, I mean, Elon sort of a, a world, a universe in and of himself, and then more broadly with all these commercial folks getting into space. I it's been fascinating to watch the the new space or whatever incarnation we have of of the current space race you know it just looks nothing like whatever people have in their heads of of what traditional um aerospace used to look like this is not this is not a thousand MIT PhDs with pocket protectors sitting around in in the room it's much closer to to the wild west of space at this point yeah, it really does seem uh, like the Wild West. Uh, some of the uh, founders of the rocket companies, Elon Musk and Peter Beck, uh, didn't uh, graduate with degrees in, in rocketry or astrophysics or uh, astronomy or, uh, or anything like that. Um, a lot of it was self-taught, you know, just, just through reading textbooks and figuring things out. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, Elon, when he started SpaceX, did exactly what you said. He he 
bought all the seminal 10 or so textbooks that, that most people read. Elon had a lot of help in that he recruited quite a few people to SpaceX early on who had worked worked in big aerospace at, at Lockheed and Boeing and TRW and, and companies like that. But people, I think they underestimate. I mean, you know, I, I, Elon is, people don't want to believe this sometimes, but he's, he's very bright on, on the actual um, engineering parts uh, of the rockets and has built his knowledge up to a pretty impressive degree. Peter Beck is is a one-of-a-kind story. I mean, not only did he not study aerospace, he didn't even go to college. You know, he was he was working at Fisher and Paykel, which is a high-end you know, appliance maker, working on dishwashers and, and doing rockets in his spare time um, in a shed in New Zealand. And, and I, I don't think there's a story like that. I mean, to me, he's, he's like a one in 7 billion engineering talent. He just exactly, like you said, he used to read some textbooks and then a lot of what NASA publishes on its websites to, to learn how to make his own propellant rockets, engines, everything. Yeah. And so for those that don't know, the fellow we're mentioning, uh, Peter Beck uh, founded rocket lab, uh, in New Zealand, and uh, this was another very impressive story because not only um, did he start a rocket company, he did it with basically no money. Um, you know, he had he didn't come from an exit like Elon Musk did. And um, in in New Zealand, there's no uh, NASA, there's no rocket infrastructure. The government didn't even have the legislation in place to allow him to try it, to to launch his rocket. So. He had to had to build the whole infrastructure, even the legal framework, uh, for him to get started. It was really an amazing story. It's it's nuts. If you and if you don't follow space, the Peter Beck obviously gets a tiny fraction of the attention that Elon gets, and and the same goes for Rocket Lab and SpaceX. But Rocket Lab really is the second coming of SpaceX. You know, we, there's two commercial rocket companies that launch with any sort of frequency and it's SpaceX and Rocket Lab and and Rocket Lab has a much smaller rocket than SpaceX does for the moment but um it's not any easier we've had american startups try to make these similar small rockets and and they've really struggled so all credit to this guy i mean you know in the early days it was really peter and a couple of like volunteers <laughs> they got their first rocket to fly and it's a much more serious company now they've gone public they're worth billions of dollars but even even through the first few years it was really a bunch of 20 something year olds from australia and new zealand none of whom had worked on an, a real aerospace um a real rocket before who made this thing work it's, a, it's like a it's just an unbelievable story uh yeah i think one of the points you made in in the the newer book is um the cost of materials has gone way down and the quality of standard electronics and materials is very, very good. It's good enough in many cases to put in a rocket that you know, will launch into to orbit. Um, the memory and computers and you know, that kind of thing is, is good enough in a lot of cases to build rockets. Is that right? It's no, it's totally right. It's funny because we think of space as obviously this very sci-fi, cutting edge technology, but the you know, the truth of the matter was yes, there was this flourish of activity in the 60s and 70s and and amazing things were accomplished. Um, but things really got frozen in time. We there became this 
this culture of not wanting to see these rockets fail. They they were tied up with national pride. They had were being driven by government agencies, military contractors who didn't want to make a mistake. And so what ended up happening is there's some pretty simple examples, things like a radio. Um, if it had flown on a rocket and, and had been hardened for the difficult conditions of space, all the radiation and temperature fluctuations, you know, it got certified as like a space grade radio. And there was probably one company in the United States that made space grade radios for rockets and charged this ridiculous amount of money for, for these special radios. It was really just in the last 10 years with guys like Elon and Peter Beck, where they thought, Hey, consumer electronics has gotten pretty good over the last few decades. Moore's law has spun many, many, many times. Maybe, some of this stuff will work in space. And maybe even if it doesn't work, it's cheap enough. We could just send like two or three or four radios, you know, and, and see what happens. And that's what they did. They flew them, turned out they usually work just fine. And so, so bringing all this modern electronics, bringing really like the, the Silicon Valley ethos, I think to aerospace through, through this clean slate where it was okay to fail a bit now. And especially, you know, most of this stuff is satellites and not humans. And so, so it's, it's okay if your rocket blows up on the pad and everybody sees it, as long as you're moving quickly to fix it and, and try again. And so just a whole new philosophy and it's, it's modernized the industry in such dramatic fashion I, it, it sort of blows my mind people have been trying to do this for 20 30 years it's only in the last few that it's all really worked yeah and um uh, uh, i forgot the name of the company that did a lot of uh test rocket flights in in alaska based in Alameda. astra astra, astra. Uh, yeah. yeah so when, when they had failures i think they kind of spun the failures that you know even though the rocket you know blew up or it didn't achieve its mission it did achieve 30 seconds of flight time or something like that uh, that could be cast as a, as a victory and uh, used to help raise more money. Yeah, there's probably a happy medium in here somewhere. Uh, you know, I think Astra, at least philosophically at the start, was trying to be the most extreme end of what I just talked about. It's like, can we actually build a rocket so they were trying to make the world's cheapest rocket that flew every day sort of mass producing rockets like we would a car and and so the goal was to make a rocket that cost about a million dollars have it take a day to make it fly it every day deliver all these satellites sort of like the fedex of space and and chris kemp the ceo you know he'd come from silicon valley software world and really wanted to apply this software methodology to rockets on the, on the hunch that that nobody in aerospace had really just gone this far and seen if if this would work where you just you just iterate all the time at low cost and and they did well i mean they ended up reaching orbit i think quicker than any organization in history um they blew up a number of rockets on on the way and then subsequently um even after they reached orbit they had rockets blowing up so you could sort of question if maybe they went too far and didn't have quite enough you know processes in place around testing um i do think there's a happy happy medium somewhere in there but things needed to change for sure the u.s people probably don't realize this um and not to go on i'm not like a huge nationalistic person but but the u.s space program was about to be in really bad shape before spacex and all these other folks came along we were heavily reliant on Russian engines to get to space, Russians to get people into space, China 
is spending tons of money on their space program. And, and, you know, if we'd been stuck with, I'm sorry to say Boeing and Lockheed and, and people like that, we'd be in a very, very bad spot right now. So um, are there other reasons why NASA just um, got very uh, ossified and, uh, you know, wasn't able to produce, you know, we talked about the cost of materials going way down, the quality of consumer goods being good enough to, to put on rockets. Uh, you know, there's more of an entrepreneurial culture taken by people like uh, Peter Beck and Elon Musk. Um, you know, lower costs uh, building rockets. Um, any other reasons that uh, NASA was so ossified? I mean, it's pretty typical sort of thing where this is a. I think NASA's undoing really is that its agenda is set by Congress people ultimately, and and that its budget is on these whims of of changing. Congress people, Congress people who are, you know, being, uh, have lobbyists coming to them all the time from traditional military contractors. So you, there, there was really no desire to save money. Um, you wanted your project to be providing as many jobs and as much money in whatever state it was, it was being run in. You had these NASA centers competing against each other to get as much money as possible, Um you couldn't have a mistake. I mean, you're you don't want to be pretty much the only way you're going to get fired at NASA is you have something blow up, and and you don't want to be the person that took that risk to uh, put some new component in, and and so you know NASA gets a lot of credit. I think for factions within NASA have helped support commercial space immensely, and and given SpaceX contracts and Rocket Lab and and all these other players contracts, but. Um, Again, I'm I'm sorry to say for people who hold out much hope for these things, you know, I I I've, I've been quite distraught on my interactions and visits at, at NASA as it still stands, and I think it's um, I think there's wonderful parts within it. I, I think it's ridiculous now that they're still competing with the commercial space companies on things like rockets, and our time would be better spent elsewhere. Do you think NASA should completely get out of the rocket business? Absolutely. I mean, SpaceX is flying. If you look at the numbers for last year, this year, SpaceX flies as many, if not more rockets than the rest of the world combined. You know, we have, they're flying every other day right now at the cheapest price. So yes, you're like at the mercy of Elon Musk for the, the moment and his temperament, but they're getting you to space more often on the most consistent rocket ever very cheaply and what's happening is now there's more rockets coming so you've got rocket lab if you want to do the satellites um you, blue origin which is funded by jeff bezos has has taken forever to sort of hit its stride but it looks like they're going to hit their stride and they will have a rocket equal to spacex's so that's both humans and satellites so you know the point is we're going to have a, many commercial options here soon. You don't have to be sole sourced or, or worry about that. And and so a SpaceX rocket carrying humans cost, I think it's about $90 million a flight at the moment, somewhere between 70 and 90. The enormous rocket that NASA just built that was many years late and many tens of billions of dollars over, it costs, it's going to cost $2 billion per flight. So, so that's just to run the thing, you know, not even, that doesn't include the 50 billion that went into development. So I just think, I think they're just not capable of, of sort of competing in the modern world. And we have plenty of, of, of options. 
Are, are there any things that um, the government would only want NASA to do, you know, military-wise? Uh, you know, may not trust an independent contractor. Well, I mean, that was that was the idea for a while. Is like you had you had Lockheed and, and Boeing, who were these trusted military contractors, and it was like, look, if we're sending up military satellites or some covert mission, maybe that's who we want handling that. We don't want to be single sourced on something like SpaceX, where you are at the behest of Elon. Um, those days have just kind of passed, you know. I mean, the if you look look at Ukraine as an example. Starlink, SpaceX's space internet system, has been keeping the Ukrainian military going for months now with their communications and, and has kept the government in operation. Even if the U.S. government wanted to to replace that with its own system, it just it physically can't. We haven't They haven't put up enough satellites. Nowhere, you know, SpaceX has put up thousands upon thousands of satellites. The U.S. government has, has a handful that do these sort of tasks. And so... Um, the commercial sector is moving so much faster I just, and SpaceX is flying our top secret missions. Now I just, I think all those days have passed. All this stuff has worked itself out now. Okay. So um, is the primary reason there's so much interest in, in rockets? Is it, is it primarily to la uh, launch satellites or uh, why is there so much interest in, in building rockets? Yeah, I mean, this is what my whole new book really is about, is people get fixated on space tourism, or they start thinking about the moon and Mars, all of which are interesting, and I'm sure one day we will be making our way there to the moon, moon faster than the others. But, you know, what's happening right now is that, okay, so if you go to 2020, we had 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit. It had taken us 60 years to put that many up. They did not, they increased on a very slow curve, about 20 to 50 new satellites per year on a very consistent basis. We've gone from 2,500 in the last three years to 10,000. We're now on an exponential curve that's going to go to 100,000 satellites in the next decade. And so what's happening is we're building a, I call it a computing shell around the earth. We are going to surround the earth with hundreds of thousands of satellites. They're gonna take pictures and video of the earth constantly. We'll be able to analyze it in ways never thought possible. The space internet is gonna be everywhere, just washing over the planet. This always on, totally connected, high-speed internet. Um, and that's sort of like the start of, of what's coming. It reminds me of like the consumer internet in 1996. You know, it was like, we had to lay a bunch of fiber. We had to build a bunch of data centers. We knew this thing was going to open up all kinds of new ideas. You just have to do all this grunt work to get it done. And and so this is where all the money is. It's where all the activity is. This is why we need so many rockets. Uh, like before, before re very recent times, you know, a government space program was lucky to put up one rocket a month. That was like the high bar. If you did 16 in a year, you were killing it. You know, SpaceX is literally launching every other day now and Rocket Lab is heading in that same direction. So we just need a ton of rockets taking all these satellites up. And, and so that's that's the race. What's, what are some of the ratios of rocket launches to satellites? How many satellites does a rocket deliver? Yeah, you basically, you know, this is roughly, roughly speaking. So you got, you've got small, medium, and large rockets. Rocket Lab is a small rocket. It would take on the order of, say, um, 
around like five or 600 pounds of stuff to space. Usually you're talking about, it's a little complicated too. So traditionally almost all satellites were like the size of a school bus. And now we have satellites just like the rockets that vary in size from like a deck of cards to that same school bus. And so so Rocket Lab with its small satellites, with its small rockets is is designed to take, you know, anywhere from two to a dozen of these small satellites to space. You've got medium-sized rockets from India, a couple in the United States. They're taking up a few tons of stuff to space. And then you've got SpaceX, you know, which is taking hundreds to thousands of tons of stuff to space. And it's, it's new rocket Starship, which is yet yet to reach space, is the biggest rocket ever built. And it would carry tens of thousands of tons to space. And are, are satellites primarily used for internet connectivity and, and taking photos of, of the earth or are there other major applications for the satellite? Well, before this most recent era, you could think of things like GPS. You could think of like satellite TV and, and radio, um, weather monitoring, all sorts of kind of government activities, espionage, things like that. Um, the most, you know, as we've gone from that 2,500 to 10,000 satellites, the vast majority of those are communications. It's the space internet being beamed down from space. And then the second largest bucket is is imaging. Um, one of the companies I focused on is called Planet Labs. They have, I just want to remind people, none of this is like futuristic. This is all happening. It's, it's over our heads right now. Planet Labs has already put 250 satellites around the Earth. They photograph every spot on the Earth's landmass every day, multiple times. And so this is this is to this is it's it can be used for espionage type stuff, but it's less, much less seeing a license plate or somebody's face or looking through their window. They can't really do that with the resolution. Um, it's more looking at our rainforest in the Amazon being chopped down. How many trees are in the Amazonian rainforest? Are these oil fields leaking methane? How much methane are they leaking? How much oil is sitting in Saudi Arabia um, cargo systems? Where is it going? Sort of the, the sum total of human activity. So those are really the first two big buckets, but we're already getting to some new, new stuff now. Well, you know, the, this year, was a real has been a real milestone so the very there's a company called varda space based in los angeles they sent up this small capsule that makes pharmaceuticals in low earth orbit so it turns out molecules do very interesting things without gravity weighing on them we can make whole new classes of drugs we've already proved this out on the ISS. Um, so they set up the very first, this is, you could think of it as the very first manufacturing system in space. So they've, they've made drugs in space. They're about to fly them back. Um, the capsule gets dropped off in the Utah desert with a parachute. We grab the, the molecules inside. And then even though they were made, you know, they get, they get sort of frozen. So even though they were made in space, you can actually mass manufacture them back on earth. Um, there's another company called Astroforge, which, I would have told you was a joke like three or four years ago. They are trying to do asteroid mining. They have also sent their first capsule into low Earth orbit this year where they had um, basically a laser heat um, 
a rock, a, a sample to see if they could actually mine it and, and get data back from the sample. And so, so I think we're at the beginning of kind of heavy industry moving into low earth orbit as well. Do you think there's a risk that uh, the market for uh, satellites will be saturated, will, will be saturated soon? Uh, it won't be saturated soon. You know, as much as I've laid out this like boom of economic activity and, and all these interesting use cases, you know, the we've yet to see a terribly profitable business in any of this. And again, I mean, it's, it's totally, um, for me, it's the early days of the internet where there's a lot of speculation. There's going to be a lot of people that wash out. We sort of got to build this infrastructure and see what happens. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, but I cannot see any limit. We, we will keep putting up these satellites more and more faster and faster for the foreseeable future. And there's, there's plenty of room in space. The, the question obviously is, you know, if these things start hitting each other and creating debris fields and things like that, then then we're in deep trouble. And so people are incented to try and make that not happen. And uh, what ratio does the United States have in terms of satellites that are already in orbit? Well, so SpaceX, not to keep harping on that, I mean, this is just the reality of the situation. You know, they are now the world's largest rocket maker and satellite maker by uh, orders of magnitude. So uh, when we had those those 2,500 satellites in 2020, you know, Planet Labs had put up 250. And so they were they were roughly about like 10% of all launch satellites. SpaceX has now put up on the order of 5,000. So the bulk of satellites in space belong to SpaceX. And they launch, like I said, you know, about 60 new ones every two days. And and so um, no one else is even close. There are other space internet uh, competitors now, like OneWeb is a competitor. They have hundreds of satellites in space. Um, Amazon is trying to build their own space internet. So they want to put up about 12,000 satellites in the next three or four years. Um, so there, there is competition coming, but right now the United States via SpaceX would be the majority of, of satellites in space. Okay. And uh, is a lot of the research conducted at the International Space Station or um, and it's research conducted in space outside of the International Space Station. Yeah, it's been almost all the ISS to a large degree because it used to be too expensive for some research body just to... You, 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 there used to not be small rockets, and if you wanted to fly on a big rocket, you had to buy most of the rocket. So you're talking like $60 million at best if you want to go try some idea out or send some probe. Um, and, you know, most of that stuff was like, deeper space probes something that's built by nasa or a, a government lab is kind of going outside of low earth orbit so we did a lot of experiments on the iss the stuff i mentioned around the molecules um companies like merck have been sending experiments to the iss it's kind of a pain you know the astronauts have to like tend to these things and run the experiments and and but that's where we saw that these molecules that there really are new pharmaceuticals that could be made. So I would say like Varda, that company I mentioned, I mean, they're sort of one of the first examples of 
the price of space has come down so much that they were able to build a startup and, and go now try these ideas and without bankrupting their company. It's essentially what can happen now on the large rockets is you can just, it's called a ride sharing mission. And instead of buying the whole rocket, because these satellites have got smaller, they'll fly 50 or 60 satellites from different companies on these rockets. And so Varda was able to just put its capsule on, I think for like one or $2 million and, and get into space to try this out. So th anyway, this is the beginning of lots of new science that's going to take place. So um, what does the International Space Station look like? My understanding, it's a collaboration of five countries. I think uh, US, Canada, the European Union, Japan, and Russia. Um, you know, how, how big is it? How many people are there at any one time? How long are they there? How high above the Earth is it? You know, the the ISS, so I'm not an ISS expert, although I can answer some of these questions. You know, it, it flies in a in a lower orbit. I mean, it's it's in this low Earth orbit range, which is roughly like 300 miles or so from space. People argue about exactly where it starts and stops, but that, that'll give you like a vague idea. Um, there's usually a handful of people on there. Some people stay... A few months some um, have stayed i think uh, on the order of like a year or more um it's been this really interesting thing where clearly huge tensions between russia and the united states particularly in in space these days and and have had you know quite a decent level of cooperation um it's getting very old in the tooth there are now a handful of startups that are building space habitats of their own. Um, so, you know, I suspect, again, I think we're going to probably see more modernized versions of the ISS getting replaced here in, in pretty short order. And uh, the ISS is 300 miles or so above the Earth. Correct. Yeah, and that's where that's where the bulk of, of these small satellites, the thousands that we're talking about, tend to fly. Mm -hmm. the, the satellites that are in uh, low Earth orbit and the ISS, um, do they do they uh, rotate around the Earth or are they stationary? Are they constantly so the, or? There's, there's different kinds of orbits, you know, like the, the Planet Labs, um, the imaging satellites that I was talking about, they're in something called a sun synchronous orbit where they're relative to the, to the Earth, they're sort of staying in place and the Earth is rotating underneath them. So they form almost like a line scanner. They, they go in, in different layers around the earth and the earth just spins underneath the satellites and they're just taking these constant photos um you know other other satellites that are in in it, it depends on the the job you're trying to do you know maybe you want to be around the equator maybe you want to be around the poles the, there's all these different things that that depend on where you launch from your type of orbit and the the job that you're trying to do a lot of the 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 communication satellites, the same thing. If you're Starlink, you want to blanket the Earth more or less, but you also have to talk to all these ground stations on Earth. And and it turns out, you know, we we tend to have a lot of ground stations up at the North Pole, where most of these communication satellites pump down a ton of their information. There's a tiny island up there called Svalbard. It's even north of Norway. It's about as far as you can go in the Arctic. And um, I've been there. It is just full of of these like satellite receivers uh, that are just 
sucking down tons of information and then riding a fiber optic cable into Europe. Okay. Um, what do you think the outlook is for space tourism? I am not, I mean, it's an interesting time in some ways. You've got, you've got Virgin and Blue Origin who have been kind of on again, off again over the last year flying people. Virgin, I think is roughly like $250,000 per flight. I think Blue Origin is quite a bit more. Um, it's a, I don't know. I mean, does it, it, it does count as space tourism. It's like a six minute flight. You, you spend a couple minutes weightless uh, on the very edge of space. Some people argue it's not even space, but, but you do get to feel, you know, gravity going away and, and sort of see the earth from, from the blackness of space. They've had troubles though. You know, they've, flown there's been issues they've had to pause their programs for months at a time virgin just restarted blue origin is still in a pause i think it's expensive i think it's um it's quite a bit of money for you could argue how great the experience is spacex is starting to fly you know there's, there's these private missions now where you can go to space for days um you could go to the iss you could SpaceX is talking about letting people do a couple laps around the moon. That's still, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars to go on that flight. So, so space tourism still has a long way to go for like the average person to be able to afford this. Um, and I'm not even sure, frankly, I'm not even sure these lower cost ones like Virgin, I'm not even sure we like survive the next few years with the way their businesses are currently architected. Well, just, just back to the issue of research in space, I heard that uh, there's some effort to make solar cells out of uh, moon rocks and dust. I'm not sure if you've heard. Um, that's not something I've followed a ton. There, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. We, I mean, I was saying, I think the moon is where we're going next. People, people should know. <laughs> you know, I think, I think quite quickly the moon is gonna go away from being a, a government exercise to a, a commercial capitalist exercise. Lockheed Martin has already created a startup that's very moon focused. I think their first mission is to put a bunch of these imaging satellites around the moon to help um, some of the human missions that are coming, like where to land, which, which spots are interesting to go to, what's going on there. Um, there's completely within the realm of billionaires and hundred millionaires now would be to fly your own lander to the moon. I mean, you could do that for under a hundred million dollars. So, um, so interesting times. I, the, the solar cells, when you're talking about like from the moon rocks or I'm less knowledgeable about what is interesting, I think with a bunch of the the solar power is there's also talk of moving a ton of computing power, basically putting data centers in low Earth orbit where the sun would be would be fueling the data centers, and you would be able to pipe that information um, directly down from space to 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 some hubs. And so, um, you know, again, sort of like trying to offload some things that consume a lot of resources here on Earth and put them in space. That's that's very interesting. Um... So you think uh, the moon will be colonized before Mars? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you used to have like these moon camps and the Mars camps and Elon was in the Mars camp, but even SpaceX, you see, they're talking about going to the moon now and are doing a lot of, of moon work. It's just so much closer. It's going to be so much easier to, to try um, some of this industrial stuff that I was talking about first there. And yeah, it's just, it's just so much more accessible. Uh, Mars is a pain, you know, you have to, you can only really launch there once every couple of years when it's, when it's that much closer to earth. If you're a human going there at best, you're talking about like a six month journey and then you got to hope that the rocket can like bring you back one day. Um, six months in a rocket, that's a, that is quite a bit to ask. At least these are not the roomiest things, you know. <laughs> How long would it take to get to the moon? Uh, the moon is just it's just a couple of days, really. Um, so a much much uh, much more manageable exercise. And are there other countries also uh, pursuing the colonization of the moon? Well, China has this immensely ambitious space program. They, I think they have a probe right now that's exploring uh, the dark side of the moon, has been sending back some data and images. They plan to put people on, on the moon. It's interesting because we're like, the world is bifurcating right now into like government-backed versus versus commercial-backed ventures where the United States is far and away the... We have the most rocket startups, the most satellite startups by orders, again, orders of magnitude. You know, we we probably have on the order of like 100 aerospace startups. Any other nation would be lucky to have like two or three or four. Um, oddly, New Zealand, because of Peter Beck, has about 10. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, even Europe only has like a couple. And, and China has these kind of quasi-government-backed uh, startups. So, um, so China's big. The U.S. wants to put humans back on the moon. And that that's like government-backed. And then also, I think there will be these commercial programs. Uh, Russia tried to land uh, a, a lander on the moon over the weekend. It looks like it crashed um, in and and we haven't heard from it since. Um, so yeah, lots of interest in the moon right now. I think the US and China are in the pole position to do the most interesting things. Is there anything, uh, any um, elements of the moon that make it particularly good for doing certain kind of research or certain manufacturing there? What's well, the deal with it offers a lot of they I mean, obviously, we've been talking about how much water is on the moon for a long time. We want to go find out. It's got some interesting minerals um, that that you could mine. I think most promising, at least for me, is, you know, if we're going to try to build out this commercial space economy is that, you know, if you could send up set up some kind of way station, either in orbit or on the moon where you're refueling rockets, you're able to launch. Um, that changes things dramatically because Earth's gravity is is just so costly in terms of, of escaping it <laughs> that that if we can have some kind of way stations up there, it's going to make, make life much more interesting. I think the asteroids in some ways are like more interesting than the moon. If you're talking about trying to harvest minerals and, and, and exciting commodities for the earth, I think of the moon more as, as like this, um, this depot for helping us kind of giving us a spot to land some equipment and manipulate it without, um, you know, totally risking your life all the time, like on, uh, on Mars. But to actually um, capture the water or mine for minerals on the moon, 
you need people there, right? You can't just do everything with machines. And Absolutely. And this is, this again, this is not, I'm not like a big, I am not here rah-rahing space or, or cheerleading for some of the stuff like some people, but yes, you know, like Jeff Bezos, um, I think Elon to some degree, a number of these people, I mean, they fully envision tens of thousands, if not millions of people working in space through a combination of doing industry on the moon and much, much larger habitats in, in orbit. Um, like the company I mentioned before, Varda, you know, right now they have this tiny capsule that has robots. It's like automated experiments, but they've their vision and it's far off and it may or may not happen, but is to put like a pharmaceutical factory in space where you would send people in shifts, you know, every few months to go back and forth between that, um, doing their work. I think, did you mention in your book um, about efforts to clean up the debris in, in space? Yeah. I mean, we have at the moment, we've got like decent systems for tracking the debris. There's a company called Leo Labs. It's built these specialized antennas uh, around the world that can spot things down to about, you know, a few millimeters in size flying in space. And, and they're like the modern day air traffic control. They track all the debris. They send satellite companies notifications when something might be about to collide or and and, and these things adjust their position. The Next step forward would be some kind of garbage collection. There is a startup. Um, I don't know if I believe it yet because they haven't launched. You know, they're talking about putting a bunch of satellites in space that also have this sort of like garbage collection kind of function to them. Um, NASA, the researchers have been exploring this idea for ages. I haven't seen anything that like certainly this needs to be done and it probably will be done. I haven't seen anything that's like enormously promising just yet. And one other thing you mentioned in your book, uh, it was interesting, is uh, the rockets consume so much fuel, which is very heavy. The more fuel you put into the rocket, the more material you got to put on the rocket to, uh, to accommodate that fuel. Um, can you talk about that dynamic and how this yeah. is dealt with that? Yeah, I mean, it's crippling. You know, the I think I forget the numbers completely. I forget the numbers off the top of my head, although they don't matter that much because the the margins are so small. It's something on the order of like, you know, one or 2% of your rocket is actual cargo. The rest really is, is like fuel. And then this tiny, thin tin can that's, that's holding the fuel. Um, so this is, this has been like the, the crippling thing about space is just, it's just, it's really hard to put much stuff in there. I, the clear, most obvious example of the thing that could change this is this enormous rocket called Starship that SpaceX has been building in Texas. People probably remember a few months ago, it was in the news, it, you know, they tried their first proper launch and it blew up um, after a couple minutes, I think. And uh, this rocket is is enormous. It has something like 28 or 36 engines on it. Um, it's meant to be built very cheaply this is not like some super exotic thing it's kind of like the crudest um simplest big rocket you could build and and it suffers from basically like the bigger your rocket gets you start to get over some of these issues it's but the big rockets are complicated because you have to have so many engines on them all working together without failure but that's that's what you need is a big giant rocket allows you to carry much, much more stuff. And so Starship is is our biggest stab at that. If it 
is successful and then these are all huge ifs because Elon is not always, you know, super close on some of these money and time predictions, but, but if it's successful, if it costs remotely on the order they're talking about, then it would undercut everybody else by, by about a hundred X on, on sort of price performance to get stuff to space. And um, even for the private companies, there's still regulation. You need permission to, to launch, right? So can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, you do. You know, there's there's the FAA in the United States looks over your rocket. They try to determine if you know what you're talking about. They make you file a ton of paperwork on, on your machine. They do all these kind of interesting crash radius things determining, you know, how much life is at risk and, and what's which lives might be willing uh might be might be losable but you know they're they're pretty strict they don't want to see see crashes and it's been tough i think in this era because these companies are moving fast they have the the regulators are trying to keep up and and help support all this industry but but certainly different to taking like 10 years to make a rocket um and then you know once you're in space mm -hmm. There's bodies like the Federal Communications Commission that would, if especially if you have a communication satellite, does your satellite interfere with somebody else's signal? What are you trying to do? Are you guys all, is it safe? Is it going to crash back to earth and hit somebody in the head? Um, there are international bodies that try to do similar things, coordinating across, across different countries. What's happened really, okay, all that stuff exists, but the truth of the matter is... If you can, if you've proved you have a rocket that can get to space, you can launch it more or less at will, and and it's really a bit of a race right now. Like whoever gets there first gets the territory, and then um, once your satellite is in space, there's almost no regulation governing like what happens to it after that. New Zealand, as far as I'm aware, is the only country that um, has actual laws in place that force companies to be very explicit about what their satellites are doing, how they're going to deorbit, how they're going to be disposed of after the fact, the environmental cost and things like that. It sort of ties into a lot of New Zealand um, current political thinking and ways of life. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's like the Wild West. We've already seen like the first illegal satellite launches, satellites snuck onto rockets, um, even with the US government telling them not to. So interesting times to say the least. <laughs> Great, and the last question, um, what is your perception of capital going into the rocket business? Uh, are, are VCs still willing to, to invest in these or do they think uh, the winners kind of have already been identified and it's very capital intensive without a lot of visibility to profits. There's probably about 10 to 12 legitimate rocket startups right now that are different phases. SpaceX and Rocket Lab are miles ahead. All these other companies are still venture backed. Um, about three have reached orbit, but not consistently. And all the rest are trying to prove themselves out. I think I think most of the venture capital has kind of gone into this first wave and we'll see who makes it out the other side. Like we almost certainly don't need 12 rocket companies. The The debate is like, do we need two? Do we need six? How many of these satellites are going to go up at the rate we expect? Um, so we'll see how things shake out. So I expect, I expect there's going to be, there's going to be a, a 
graveyard here in the next like two to three years of some of these rocket companies, then I kind of think, I think things will, we'll see the landscape and where demand is. And I sort of suspect we might have another crack at this where it's another round of lessons learned and we can do this cheaper and we can manufacture these better. There's the rockets still are quite like handmade. Um, even at SpaceX and rocket lab, there's still a lot of manual labor. I mean, we have not Henry Forded rocket making quite yet. So, um, I think there's room to do stuff like that. I think with the way the interest rates are and what's happened to capital, I mean, we're, we're going to see a bunch of space companies wash out and then, and then I think take another crack at this with a clean slate all over again. Okay, great. Well, uh, Ashley Vance, thank you so much for spending this time with us and educating us on uh, current developments in rockets and satellites. Uh, it was very interesting, very informative. And I encourage everyone that's listening to this to read Ashley's books. They're they're great books. So uh, one of the books is um, uh, called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. And the new book uh, that's in line with what Ashley was talking about today is When the Heavens Went on Sale. Uh, so I think everyone will enjoy reading uh, Ashley Vance's book. So thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thanks, David. I appreciate it.